PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to PTJ's The Bottom Line for May 2009. I'm Donovan Stutel along with Dave Corvoisier. Bottom lines translate the findings of selected research articles for clinical practice. Bottom lines are not intended to substitute for a critical reading of the original articles. The bottom lines for the May 2009 issue of PTJ were written by Dr. Eric K. Robertson, assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy of the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia. Our first bottom line summarizes... Surplus value of hip adduction in leg press exercise in patients with patellofemoral pain syndrome, a randomized controlled trial. By Chen Yi Song, Dr. Yang Fu Lin, Tong Cheng Wei, Dr. Da Hon Lin, Zhu Yu Yen, and Mei Hua Zhang. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? Patellofemoral pain syndrome is a common musculoskeletal problem of the knee. The strategies that have been proposed to manage patellofemoral pain syndrome generally emphasize selective activation of the vastus medialis oblique muscle, or VMO, during quadriceps strengthening. However, little evidence to support or refute this recommendation exists. The researchers set out to examine the benefit of an exercise that some believe preferentially activates the VMO and to compare these results to a group of control subjects and to patients performing a standard exercise. Who participated in this study? 89 individuals who were examined and found to have patellofemoral pain syndrome participated in the study. What new information does this study offer? The researchers determined that the addition of isometric hip adduction during leg press exercise did not increase the therapeutic benefit observed over the control subjects. Both experimental groups significantly improved pain scores, Lisholm scale scores, and VMO cross-sectional area, but these changes were not observed in the control group. What new information does this study offer for patients? This study examined a commonly performed exercise thought to target the middle portion of the thigh muscles for patients with patellofemoral pain syndrome. When this exercise was compared to a traditional leg press, no added benefit was noted. This suggests that a simple leg press exercise is adequate to induce a training effect in this muscle and to reduce pain and improve function for patients with patellofemoral pain syndrome. How did the researchers go about the study? The researchers randomly allocated subjects into three groups. One, a group that performed a simple leg press. Two, a group that performed a leg press combined with isometric hip adduction against a 50-newton force that is thought to increase the activation of the VMO. And three, a control group that received advice but not any exercise. The test period was eight weeks in duration and included three exercise sessions per week. Both the randomization and assessment portions of the trial were blinded. Outcome measures included pain scores, Lisholm scale scores, and VMO cross-sectional area that was measured via ultrasonography. How might the results be applied to physical therapist practice? 
The results of this trial do not support the notion that there is added benefit to performing leg press exercises with hip adduction in the rehabilitation of patients with patellofemoral pain syndrome. Patients may be able to achieve hypertrophy of the VMO and clinically meaningful reductions in pain and improvements in function using the traditional leg press exercise. What are the limitations of the study, and what further research is needed? Morphologic changes were measured only for the VMO, but there might have been changes in the other quadriceps muscles that contributed to clinical improvements. In addition, a 50-newton adduction force might not have been enough to induce a specific training effect with this exercise. Further research is needed to investigate changes in patellar tracking and alignment with VMO hypertrophy, as well as to investigate whether other modifications of the leg press exercise may be more effective in selectively activating the VMO over a simple leg press. Our next bottom line summarizes... Interventions associated with an increased or decreased likelihood of pain reduction and improved function in patients with adhesive capsulitis, a retrospective cohort study by Dr. Dion Jewell, Dr. Daniel Riddle, and Dr. Leroy Thacker. What problems did the researchers set out to study and why? Adhesive capsulitis of the shoulder presents a large individual and economic burden Yet information about the likelihood of improvement with specific non-surgical interventions is lacking. The researchers wanted to examine non-surgical interventions that are associated with an increased or decreased likelihood of improvement in short-term pain and physical health for a large cohort of patients diagnosed with adhesive capsulitis. What sources were used in this study? The researchers used data from 2,370 patients from 424 physical therapy clinics who had a diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis and who were included in the Focus on Therapeutic Outcomes, Inc., or photo database. Subjects were excluded if they had a secondary diagnosis, were under 18 years of age, or did not complete their episode of care. What new information does this study offer? The results of this study suggested that the use of joint mobilizations and exercise increases the likelihood of improvement for patients with adhesive capsulitis, whereas the use of ultrasound, massage, iontophoresis, and phonophoresis decreases the likelihood of improvement. What new information does this study offer for patients? When receiving treatment for adhesive capsulitis of the shoulder, a physical therapist's use of joint mobilizations and exercise improve the chance of meaningful improvement. But the use of ultrasound, massage, or anti-inflammatory medication delivered across the skin decrease the chance of improvement. This information can help patients and physical therapists make decisions about the best treatment for adhesive capsulitis. How did the researchers go about this study? This was a longitudinal cohort study. The researchers identified subjects through ICD-9 codes in the photo database. Four different health outcome measures were used to retrospectively examine pain and physical health variables. Physical component factor analysis was used to identify treatment categories from individual codes, and a logistic regression model was used to identify interventions associated with a 50% improvement in outcome scores. How might the results be applied to physical therapist practice? In order to maximize the likelihood of improvement, 
physical therapists should consider increasing their use of joint mobilizations and exercise, while decreasing the use of ultrasound, massage, iontophoresis, and phonophoresis in patients with adhesive capsulitis of the shoulder. In addition, identification of interventions that increase the likelihood of improvement can be considered by researchers designing future effectiveness studies. What are the limitations of the study, and what further research is needed? Information on diagnoses and interventions relied on the accuracy of recordings made by the treating therapist. The photo database may not fully capture the complexity of management, for example, the emphasis placed on a particular intervention within a treatment episode. Also, impairment measures were not available to support the diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis, and some interventions were excluded due to infrequent use by physical therapists in the study. Randomized controlled trials are needed to determine the optimal interventions for individuals with adhesive capsulitis of the shoulder. Our next bottom line summarizes short-term efficacy of upper extremity exercise training in patients with chronic airway obstruction, a systematic review by Stefania Costi, Dr. Mauro Dibari, Paolo Pilistrini, Dr. Roberto D'Amico, Dr. Ernesto Crisafulli, Cinzia Orletti, Dr. Leonardo Fabri, and Dr. Enrico M. Clini. What problems did the researchers set out to study and why? Upper extremity exercise training has been proposed to be beneficial to patients with chronic airway obstruction by improving functional status and reducing symptoms during activities of daily living. Despite the inclusion of this form of training in recent clinical practice guidelines, limited evidence exists to support the proposed benefit. The researchers set out to perform a systematic review of clinical trials examining upper extremity exercise training. Who participated in this study? Two reviewers were responsible for assessing article eligibility, performing data extraction, and rating the quality of included studies. What new information does this study offer? No effect of the upper extremity exercise training was demonstrated for measures of arm fatigue, and the few studies that were included in the analysis reported inconsistent heterogeneous data. What new information does this study offer for patients? The results of a review of trials evaluating the effectiveness of training exercise for the arms of patients with chronic airway obstruction did not favor either including this treatment or excluding this treatment. More research is needed to determine the possible benefit of this form of exercise training. How did the researchers go about this study? The research team included randomized controlled trials that included upper extremity exercise training intervention for at least 20 sessions for a minimum frequency of three times per week in accordance with recommendations in recently published clinical practice guidelines. The included trials were evaluated using the Consolidated Standards of Reporting Trials, or CONSORT, statement. Ultimately, four trials met the inclusion criteria. How might the results be applied to physical therapist practice? Based on very limited evidence to support the inclusion or exclusion of upper extremity exercise training in patients with chronic airway obstruction, the researchers concluded that no recommendation is possible.
What are the limitations of the study, and what further research is needed? Due to the limited methodological quality of the included trials, the researchers elected not to perform a meta-analysis of the data which they believed could return misleading results. Additional high-quality research is required using homogeneous outcomes and large sample sizes to determine the effectiveness of upper-extremity exercise training in this patient population. Our next bottom line summarizes physical therapists' use of cognitive behavioral therapy for older adults with chronic pain, a nationwide survey by Dr. Catherine Beisner, Dr. Charles Henderson, Jr., Dr. Maria Papaliancio, Dr. Yelena Okolskaya, Dr. Janet Wigglesworth, and Dr. M.C. Reed. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? Chronic pain is a common and often disabling condition among older adults. Cognitive behavioral therapy is an evidence-supported non-pharmacologic intervention for chronic pain. The theoretical basis for cognitive behavioral therapy is that an individual's beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors may play a central role in their experience of pain, but few studies have described the inclusion of cognitive behavioral therapy in physical therapist practice. The researchers set out to identify the extent to which cognitive behavioral therapy is included in physical therapist practice for this patient population, as well as how often more standard interventions are utilized. The researchers also looked to identify physical therapist interest in and barriers to providing cognitive behavioral therapy for older adults with chronic pain. Who participated in this study? 152 physical therapists who were members of the orthopedic and geriatric sections of the American Physical Therapy Association were included in a survey. What new information does this study offer? Relatively few physical therapists currently use cognitive behavioral therapy interventions as part of their treatment for older adults with chronic pain, although interest in incorporating these techniques is substantial. Commonly used cognitive behavioral therapy interventions were activity pacing and pleasurable activity scheduling. Therapies that are not part of cognitive behavioral therapy focused on joint stability and mobility. Barriers, such as lack of knowledge, skill level, and reimbursement concerns were identified. Practice type, percentage of patients with chronic pain, and educational degree of the therapist were independently associated with interest in cognitive behavioral therapy. What new information does this study offer for patients? This study provides information about how often physical therapists use techniques designed to affect the way older patients think, feel, and act in response to chronic pain. Although only a small percentage of physical therapists currently use these techniques, the interest in overcoming barriers to their use is substantial. Further research is needed to determine how best to incorporate these types of treatments and to measure their effectiveness as part of a physical therapy intervention. How did the researchers go about the study? The research team developed a survey instrument based on a comprehensive review of the literature, including items about the aspects of cognitive behavioral therapy that best related to physical therapist practice. The survey was administered via telephone. Statistical analysis was performed using general linear models to determine associations between participant-related factors and interest in cognitive behavioral therapy. 
How might the results be applied to physical therapist practice? This study offers information regarding the prevalence of cognitive behavioral therapy techniques in physical therapist practice and physical therapists' receptivity to learning more about the techniques. This information can help identify and reduce barriers to incorporating this evidence-supported intervention. What are the limitations of the study, and what further research is needed? The length of this survey did not allow analysis of the therapist's rationale for choice of interventions, nor did it allow analysis of how much emphasis was placed on particular interventions within a treatment session. In addition, the survey focused on a general approach to treating chronic pain, whereas information related to specific pain locations or types of pain may have provided different data. Future research should investigate ways to reduce barriers to including cognitive behavioral therapy and should analyze the benefits and cost-effectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy as part of physical therapy interventions. Our last bottom line this month summarizes rapid and long-term adaptations in gait symmetry following unilateral step training in people with hemiparesis by Dr. Jennifer Kahn and Dr. T. George Hornby. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? Recovery of ambulation is substantial and common in many patients following stroke, yet gait abnormalities such as step-length asymmetries often persist. Little evidence is available to guide clinicians about which interventions may improve gait symmetry. The researchers wanted to examine adaptations to spatiotemporal gait parameters following unilateral step training in subjects with step-length asymmetries post-stroke. Who participated in this study? Eighteen individuals with chronic hemiparesis of greater than six months' duration and substantial step-length asymmetries participated in the study. Subjects with severe contractures or orthopedic abnormalities that limited range of motion or mobility, as well as those not healthy enough for unilateral step training, were excluded from the study. Patients were excluded if they had uncontrolled hypertension or diabetes, cardiac arrhythmias, bilateral brainstem or cerebellar stroke, unhealed decubitus ulcers, or cognitive impairments that would limit how much patients could understand about the procedures. What new information does this study offer? The researchers observed that during fast-paced overground walking, step-length asymmetries improved by up to 13% immediately following unilateral step training, and these changes persisted up to 24 hours. Step-length asymmetries also improved after 10 sessions of unilateral step training with changes retained for up to two weeks. What new information does this study offer for patients? For patients following stroke, treadmill training with only the uninvolved limb positioned on a treadmill may be able to offer rapid improvements in the ability to move the lower extremities in a symmetrical manner. These changes were observed to diminish over time, but the results of this trial offer promising information about interventions to improve walking ability. How did the researchers go about this study? The trials were conducted with the unimpaired limb on the treadmill, and the involved limb was held stationary off of the treadmill. This trial consisted of two phases. In the first phase, subjects received a 20-minute session of unilateral step training and short-term effects were observed. 
In Phase 2, the subjects attended 10 20-minute sessions of unilateral step training and data were collected to observe the long-term response. In Phase 1, data points after the unilateral step training session were at 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and 30 minutes, one day, and one week. In Phase 2, data collection points were before sessions 4, 7, and 10, and at one week and two weeks following the training. Spatiotemporal gait measurements were observed. How might the results be applied to physical therapist practice? The results of this trial suggest that a 20-minute session of unilateral step training has the potential to immediately improve gait symmetry in individuals with chronic hemiparesis and step length asymmetries. Unilateral step training may be used as an adjunctive treatment to improve gait in this patient population. What are the limitations of the study, and what further research is needed? The functional significance of improved gait symmetry is still unknown, so these changes may or may not be large enough to be clinically significant. There was no control group in this trial, and the kinetics and kinematics of gait were not assessed. Future research should investigate changes in quantifiable gait characteristics and examine unilateral step training alongside other interventions designed to improve gait symmetry. Thanks for listening. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.